0: come before you this morning on a day that our nation celebrates its independence, thanking you that we still have the freedom to gather together to worship you without fear. But Lord, we ask that you would guard our hearts against ever forgetting our total dependence on you. Lord, we lift up our nation asking that you would grant repentance across our land and draw people to love and follow you. We pray the same thing for our leaders, Lord, for President Biden, for Vice President Harris, and all those in positions of authority who don't know you, Lord, that you would grant them repentance, that you would draw them to salvation, that you would turn them from evil that they pursue, Lord. that you would just do a great work in the hearts of people across our land, Lord, but if not, that you would be merciful to us and replace those who will not follow you with those who will. Lord, we pray that no matter what is in your plan, that you will give us the grace to trust you knowing that your plan never fails and that you will always do what's best. And we pray that you would give us the grace to trust you and to remain faithful in all circumstances, Lord. We just pray that you would guide your people by your spirit, that you'd be with us today, that you would just give us wisdom as we look at your word, that we would apply it rightly in our hearts by your power, Lord, and that you would be glorified and Christ would be exalted here this morning as we open your word. We just pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, if you turn there, and we'll be reading verses 37 through 43. And if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You may be seated. Now these verses come at the end of Jesus' public ministry. After the prologue of the Gospel of John and Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, Chapters 2 through 1236 record the public teaching and works of Jesus, ending with the final words immediately preceding our text this morning. They say, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The next five chapters cover Jesus' private teaching to his disciples before his arrest and trial in chapter 18, his crucifixion and burial in chapter 19, and his resurrection and appearances to his disciples in chapters 20 and 21. These verses in chapter 12, 37 through 43, cap off Jesus' public ministry. And John's commentary in these verses gives us a snapshot of how things sat with the Jews at the end of Jesus' ministry among them. Of course, these verses don't come to us in a vacuum. They appear at a specific point in John's gospel... And if we want to understand them fully, as we find them here at this pivotal point, I think it's important that we understand the main focus of John's gospel and the importance the signs we see mentioned here play in that focus. So if we had to pick one predominant, overarching theme in this gospel, I think it would have to be the message of who Jesus is. John begins the prologue of his gospel with amazing claims about who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then we see in verse 14 of the prologue that it was this eternal divine one who existed in everlasting communion with the Father the one who created all creation, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And, John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'll only mention without going into the many examples that John takes each of the major claims that Yahweh makes about himself to distinguish himself as the only true God in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, and applies them to Jesus multiple times in his gospel. Things like he could proclaim the future before it happens. He is the eternal I am. He's the only creator of heaven and earth. And he's the only savior who blots out the transgressions of his people. In addition to all these things, John records seven of the miracles of Jesus in his gospel that are intended to point his readers to who Jesus is. One thing that's interesting and unique about John is that he never uses the common Greek word for miracle that each of the other gospel writers uses. Instead, he always refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, things that point beyond themselves to something else. In the case of Jesus' signs, all the ones that John records point beyond themselves to a greater truth about who Jesus is that we're to believe. These signs that point us to what we're to believe about Jesus play a major role in John's gospel and are given as a basis for what we're to believe in the purpose statement John gives for his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31. There he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus' miraculous signs point to who he is. And they form an important theme running throughout the gospel, and that must be especially true for the largest section of the gospel that records Jesus' public ministry, because six of the seven signs are recorded in those chapters and in each case the sign points to a deeper spiritual truth about who Jesus is. So let's run through the six signs in Jesus' public ministry real quick. So first of all in chapter two Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast to save an incompetent bridegroom. But in 2.6, John makes sure that the reader understands that Jesus used six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus filled these jars with what he would later identify as the symbol of the only thing that can make a ter- person truly spiritually poor, pure, sorry, his blood, the blood of the new covenant. And in the next chapter, John the Baptist would also identify Jesus as the bridegroom to his disciples in a conversation that was sparked by a discussion with a Jew over purification. So we see in this sign, Jesus is the bridegroom who purifies his bride with his blood. Then in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, Jesus demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease, and ability to reverse the destructive effects of the fall when he healed an official's son. But this was only the first of several escalating signs demonstrating this power and would end up with the demonstration of his authority even over death. In chapter 5, Jesus demonstrated this same authority when he healed an invalid. But this time he healed the man on the Sabbath and infuriated the Jews by claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath when he said, My father is working until now, and I am working which they correctly interpreted as making himself equal with God. In chapter 6, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish, with twelve baskets full of leftovers. Then this led to Jesus' proclamation to them when they followed him wanting more food the next day. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he claimed to have come down from heaven. In chapter 9, Jesus performed another miracle of healing. This time he healed a man born blind on the Sabbath, but went even further than before by claiming to have the authority to judge sins. And to give both physical and spiritual sight as well when he said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And he then applied that last statement to the Pharisees. Then finally, in chapter 11, Jesus demonstrated his power to reverse the effects of the fall and his authority over even death by raising Lazarus from the dead. This sixth sign recorded by John during Jesus' public ministry pointed to the claim he made to Mary and what we must believe in eleven twenty-six and 27. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? Of course, Jesus' seventh and final sign would be his own resurrection from the dead, never to die again, which he had prophesied back in chapter 2 when he was asked for a sign after cleansing the temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up speaking of the temple of his body. But just from the six signs that Jesus performed during his public ministry, we see what they pointed to about who he is. He's the bridegroom who cleanses his bride by his blood. He's the one having authority over sickness and disease. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, being equal with God. He's the bread of life come down from heaven. He's the judge of sin who has authority to give spiritual sight, and he is the resurrection and the life. So at this point, I hope we can all see the importance of signs in John's gospel and how they point to who Jesus is. So with that in mind, let's return to our text in John 12, 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So at this point in John's gospel, he wanted to make sure that there was no misunderstanding on the part of the reader. Jesus had done many miracles. He'd healed the sick, fed multitudes from virtually nothing, and even raised the dead. And in spite of all this, the people still weren't believing in him. From a human standpoint, it would have been easy to think that despite all his best efforts, Jesus' mission was failing. But John's statement doesn't end with the words, they still did not believe in him. It says they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. Those two words, so that, translate the Greek word "hina," which introduces a purpose clause, showing there was a purpose For their unbelief. John is not saying that they refuse to believe in spite of God's best efforts to bring them to faith. He's saying that they refuse to believe in spite of the overwhelming miraculous evidence that pointed to who Jesus was so that the plan of God and redemption might be fulfilled. John's pointing to the sovereignty of God and salvation to explain their unbelief. And at this point in John's gospel, this wasn't a new idea being introduced. In chapter 6, after telling the people, all that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus made his famous statement, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And in chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, in verse 27. He described his sheep as both those who had already heard and followed him and those whom he must bring in the future, who would hear his voice, as verse 16 said. And in verses 25 and 26, he told the Jews who had gathered around him, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And I want us to notice the causal relationship between believing and being one of Jesus' sheep here. Jesus didn't tell them, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He told them, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So in our text, in John 12, 38, John points back to the already established theme of the sovereignty of God and salvation to explain the unbelief of the people. And to demonstrate the truth of his explanation, he points his readers back to Isaiah's prophecies of Israel's unbelief over seven centuries earlier. John's first citation of Isaiah comes from Isaiah fifty-three one, which is the, in the messianic prophecy of the last of Isaiah's servant songs in Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three twelve. There we see prophesied that the servant of Yahweh would not be desired by the people. In fact, he would be despised and rejected, and they would esteem him not, as verses 2 and 3 there say. And then John's second citation from Isaiah comes from Isaiah's call to be Yahweh's messenger in Isaiah's temple vision in Isaiah 6. There, Isaiah is commissioned to take a message calling the people to repent and turn back to God that will ultimately be rejected by the people And bring about their destruction. The first and more immediate fulfillment of this prophecy happened in Israel and Judah's rejection of Isaiah's message. Resulting in God's judgment in the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. Which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple. But John applies this same prophecy to Israel's rejection of the Messiah which led to God's judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple in A.D. 70. Now there's a lot that could be said about these citations, but John's primary point here is that not only had God foretold the people's unbelief, but as John 12.40 says, they could not believe, because ultimately it was God who had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. It was all happening according to the sovereign plan of God. Now at this point, I would think John's citation of these two verses was only to demonstrate this primary point about the people's unbelief being under the sovereign control of God if it weren't for verse 41. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John tells us that in these passages, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Just as each of the signs in John's gospel pointed to a deeper spiritual truth about who Jesus is, each of the citations from Isaiah here pointed to something deeper that people should have believed about Jesus. Of course, the people all believed something about Jesus, And their beliefs ranged all the way from the opinion that he was demon-possessed to the opinion that he was the promised Messiah and Davidic king, who they expected to defeat the Romans and rule the nations with a rod of iron. We'll look more into that in a moment, but these two passages from Isaiah pointed to what they should have believed, but were blinded to. So let's turn back to these passages and look at what they reveal about Christ, and we'll begin by reading Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, if you want to follow along. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So not only does this passage foretell the people's rejection of the Messiah, which we saw earlier, it foretells his sufferings which was something the people didn't want to believe. They were happy to follow a Messiah who would liberate them from their earthly oppressors and lead Israel to sit atop an earthly empire. But a suffering Messiah who would hang on a Roman cross, as Jesus had prophesied multiple times, and whose kingdom was not of this world, was not acceptable to them. This passage and Isaiah is also probably what the longest and clearest statement of what is called penal substitutionary atonement in all of scripture. Penal substitutionary atonement teaches that Christ endured the wrath of the Father that was due to his people as punishment for their sins. For us who are in Christ, he was our substitute fully absorbing and removing the wrath of God we deserve on our behalf and purchasing our forgiveness with his life. This was something Jesus' own disciples didn't fully comprehend until after his resurrection, but is a doctrine that is absolutely central to the gospel that we must believe to be saved. In this passage, John tells us Isaiah saw the suffering servant who would lay down his life to make atonement for the sins of his people and be glorified because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors to bear their sins and to make intercession for them. So now let's look at John's second citation from Isaiah 6. And we'll begin in verse 1 there also. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and Yahweh removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is the stump. So this passage also tells us something about who Jesus is that's essential to what we must believe for salvation. It shoots us back to the opening words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It reminds the reader of all the I Am sayings of Jesus earlier in his gospel and the way John applied each of the unique attributes of God that were intended to identify him as the only true God. In Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, he took those and applied them to Jesus. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne and heard the seraphim cry back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if we ask Isaiah who he saw, he gives us a direct answer in verse 5. He says, my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. But John explains to us, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So like so many other things in the gospel of John, these two quotations from Isaiah point us to truths about Jesus that we must believe to have life in his name. These truths had already been explained earlier in the gospel. For example, Jesus laying down his life for the sheep in John ten eleven, which says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, 17, which says, For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And we've already mentioned some of the passages proclaiming the deity of Christ earlier in the gospel. But before we jump into the last two verses of our text in John 12 and make some application to our lives, I hope we're all seeing the importance of what we believe about who Jesus is. The Old Testament saints had the same object of their faith as we have today, Yahweh and his promises of salvation. But that same object of faith has been much more fully revealed to us in the incarnation and teachings of Jesus, which were delivered to us by his divinely inspired disciples in the New Testament. As John explains in John 18, no one has ever seen God, speaking of the Father, But he goes on, the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of the Son, he says, he has made him known. And just as the Old Testament saints were required to believe all that God had revealed about himself at the time in which they lived and place all their hope in him, we too are required to believe all that God has revealed about himself in Christ and place all our hope in what was accomplished by him in his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We'll talk more about the importance of what we believe after we look at verses 42 and 43. They say, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, these verses have caused disagreement among some commentators over the nature of the belief verse 42 says many had in Jesus. But I think the case can be made that this is clearly not genuine saving faith that John's referring to here. I'll give you three reasons why real quick. First of all, John speaks of people believing in Jesus in other places and then clearly states that they didn't truly believe. One example is John eight thirty and 31, which says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. But in verse 37, he tells the same Jews, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And just a few verses later, in verses 43 through 45, he tells them, "'Why do you not understand what I say? "'It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. "'You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. "'He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth "'because there is no truth in him. "'When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, "'for he is a liar and the father of lies.'" but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Second, and I won't bore you with all the details of the grammar, but John always uses the simplest, most nondescriptive tense form of the verb for believe in cases where the belief is misdirected or not genuine. And that's what we find in 1242. And then the third reason, which I think really just settles it by itself, is that those who would not confess their their belief in Jesus for fear of the Pharisees because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God sound a lot like the people Jesus described in multiple places like Matthew 10, 37, and 38. There he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And Mark 8.38 says, For whomever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So genuine belief doesn't shrink back from the truth of God to appease the sinful demands of men. So we see that these people believed something about Jesus. But whatever it was they believed, it wasn't sufficient. There are people who believe good things about Jesus throughout John's gospel. They said things like, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done in John 7.31? And in fact, the Jews who saw Jesus feed the 5,000 in chapter 6 said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And we're ready to take him by force to make him king in John six fourteen and 15. Yet by the end of the chapter, after he had claimed to be the bread of life who came down from heaven, it says they turned back and no longer walked with him. So... When we look at the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, we see that the people were often open to believing many good things about Jesus that went along nicely with who they wanted him to be. They wanted a Messiah who would lead the people in the proper temple worship of Yahweh, not a Messiah who would fulfill what the temple worship pointed to and declare God's judgment and the destruction of the temple instead. They wanted a Messiah who would conquer Rome as a great military leader and rule the nations with a rod of iron, not a suffering servant who would be executed on a Roman cross. They were willing to accept Jesus as a good man, blessed by God and a great prophet, but they would never accept Jesus' claims of eternal deity in statements like, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In John 8 24. And truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, in John eight fifty-eight. You see, the people were comfortable and would have been very happy with the Messiah who believed the things they believed, wanted the things they wanted, and hated the things they hated. If Jesus had come preaching Jewish domination over the nations, they would have followed him wherever he led. In fact, history records how multiple false messiahs in the first century preached this message and led many Jews to their deaths. But Jesus came preaching repentance and salvation through faith in him alone. He came calling people to follow him in suffering, not in waging war against the Romans. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And it is this unpopular message about who Jesus is that the people simply couldn't believe. Not only were they unwilling to follow a Messiah who would suffer and be executed, they found it reprehensible to claim that this suffering servant, who would be hung on a tree under the curse of God, was also the creator himself, the king of heaven who Isaiah saw on his throne, Yahweh of hosts. And it's this message about who Jesus is, the message of the cross, Christ crucified, that's not only unacceptable to Jews, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But just like John pointed to the sovereignty of God to explain the people's unbelief, Paul pointed to the sovereignty of God to explain the, the belief of Christians. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So let's recap what we've seen that we can get some application from. First of all, we've seen the importance John places on who Jesus is and how what we believe about Jesus is essential to having life in his name. Second, we've seen that God is sovereign. He's in complete control of everything, including salvation, and has a purpose even for unbelief. And finally, we've seen that believing good things about Jesus isn't enough. We must believe everything he's revealed about himself. Even the things that go against our natural desires and inclinations. And we mustn't shrink back when these things bring us ridicule from others. So, how can we apply these truths in our lives as we leave today? First of all, what people believe about Jesus is of eternal importance. There are certain truths that must be believed to have life in his name, there's no excuse for ignorance. Believing nothing at all, believing only parts of what's clearly been revealed in Scripture, and believing false things are all the same when it comes to whether or not a person has life in his name. As John 3.18 says, "...whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God." And knowing this should light a fire under us to share the message of who Jesus is and what he's done with anyone around us who doesn't already know and believe. As sinners say, by grace, we should want to share Christ with anyone who doesn't already know him. Second, I'm reminded of a note R.C. Sproul said he kept in his Bible when I read about the people who believed but wouldn't confess it for fear of the Pharisees. He kept it in his Bible to remind himself of his duty as a, as a pastor, but I think it could be adapted to apply to the duty of every Christian. It said, you are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. And the same thing's true of every Christian. We're required to believe and to share with others what the Bible says is true. Not what we or others or the prevailing sentiment in the culture says is true. And this is where I see so many who claim the name of Christ today capitulating and showing their love for the world's approval, outweighing their love for God's truth. Many who claim the name of Christ did this a long time ago. They proclaim a Jesus who loves everyone all the time in their sin unconditionally without any judgment. But many... Even in more conservative Christian circles have begun capitulating on issues Scripture is very clear about, including many whose books we've read, and many in leadership even in our own convention. And my point is that if people who we once regarded as generally reliable and solid teachers have given in to the pressures of a society that celebrates its sin and doesn't tolerate dissent, then we need to be especially on guard in our own lives. So before we leave this point of application, I want to make sure we aren't only looking outside ourselves at other people when we consider these verses. These temptations to avoid the rebuke of the world are real. And the temptation to just be agreeable in a situation where someone you care about will be greatly offended if you tell them the straightforward, honest truth is real. There's also the temptation to rationalize or try to explain away what we find in the Bible when it goes against what we want to be true. There have been times in my own life when I found something in Scripture that I didn't particularly like, and my immediate inclination was to explain it away rather than repent, submit, and obey it. We should continually be evaluating ourselves honestly against the Word of God and I found that some of the truths of scripture that I initially resisted the most have become some of the greatest and most comforting truths in my life. So let me simply end this point with a warning. If the Jesus you believe in just happens to usually like the things you like and hate the things you hate, if he has zero tolerance for those who annoy you, But is gracious and not too concerned about some of the thoughts that pass through your mind or statements that come out of your mouth, then you may have a pleasant and comforting idol on the throne of your heart who resembles you more than the Jesus of Scripture. And finally, I want to point you to a word of encouragement. Just as Jesus' public ministry would have looked like a massive failure to an outsider seeing the people's rejection of him, we may be tempted to feel downtrodden and defeated when we look at our nation, our community, or maybe even people in our own families who reject Christ. But the ratio of people who repent and turn to Christ to people who reject Christ or create a false Christ that resembles them is not the measure of success or failure in God's plan. As Jesus said in John six forty four, those whom the Father draws will be raised up on the last day. And as he said in John ten sixteen, he has sheep whom he must bring. The word must there is the translation of the Greek word day, meaning it is necessary he bring them and they will hear his voice and will follow him. So all of those who are to be saved will be saved. Success or failure can't be measured by the number of professions or baptisms we see around us. At the end of Jesus' public ministry, the people's rejection of him was actually accomplishing God's plan of redemption, not a sign of its failure. As Acts 4, 27 and 28 tells us, the people of Israel who rejected Jesus, along with Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, were only doing what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. God's plans will always succeed. God's word will never return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, as Isaiah 55, 11 says, whether that word is intended by God to save or to condemn So the church's success doesn't depend on statistical increases or decreases in baptisms from year to year. It doesn't depend on our nation's obedience or rebellion to the word of God. The standard by which we judge our success should depend on whether or not we will be obedient to the word of God. Will we carry the message of reconciliation and warn the world of the coming judgment for sin? Will we as sinners, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, call people to repent of their sins and find that same salvation? And when I say Christ alone, I mean the Christ of Scripture, both sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Christ, as he has revealed himself in Scripture alone, and as he has revealed himself in all of Scripture we aren't free to pick and choose the things we like to proclaim about Christ at the exclusion of other things he's revealed. We're called to sow the seed of the gospel and trust God to prepare the soil as he sees fit. Like Paul and Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3, we're merely God's servants in God's field. One plants and other waters, but it is God who gives the growth. So as we look at our nation our society, our community, or even within our own families. Let's not be discouraged by what we see. Our success isn't measured by what other people do. It should be measured by what we do. Are you being obedient to believe, obey, and share all that the Bible says is true? If you are, then your ministry is a success and you will receive your reward from God. If not, then pray that God will grant you the grace to obey him more fully. And then I have one final word for anyone here who does not know the Jesus I've been talking about this morning. If you don't know the Jesus who is the eternal God who created heaven and earth, who took the form of a human and entered into his own creation, who lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, who suffered and died who endured the wrath of the Father for the sins of his people and rose again as the first fruits of many to demonstrate his victory over sin and death, if you don't know this Jesus, and if you haven't repented of your sins as he commands and are not fully trusting in him alone and what he's done for the forgiveness of sins and salvation from the judgment we all rightly deserve, then please don't leave here this morning without seeking to know him. No sin and no amount of sin is too great or too small. If you think your sins aren't that bad, then you don't understand the greatness of the one you've sinned against and whose law you've broken. And if you think your sins are too bad, then you don't understand the greatness of the one who gave his life for sins. So please come talk to me or anyone else you've seen up here this morning after the service we'd be more than happy to talk to you and answer any questions that you might have. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for what we see there. Lord, thank you so much for Christ, for your revelation of who he is and for your revelation of all he's done. Lord, we just ask that you would lead us that your spirit would lead us in not only hearing the truths as we read your word, but that those would go to our heart and that we would apply them in our lives. That we would have a fire burning inside us to share these truths with others, to see others come to know you as we have, Lord. That we would declare all that you revealed, not just the parts that we like the best that we would come to love all of your revelation lord we just love you and praise you and thank you for christ and we pray all this in his precious name